Good morning. Grab a Bible and turn to the latter part of Luke 9. Luke chapter 9. That's where we'll be today. Luke 9, beginning in verse 49. And as you're turning there, a few little announcements. Number one, Robin and Karen Wood from Camp Allendale are here. Good to have you guys. They never tell me when they're coming until the last minute. So normally we, we want to uh, have time for testimony and whatnot, but we had our teacher appreciation time. But next time I want more than 48 hours notice. All right? Okay. <laughs> we love you guys. We're glad you're here. And we heard too that, uh, that uh, the celebration, the summer celebration was fantastic. I know a number of people from Coast came and uh, they had a great time. So it's been a good summer at Camp Allendale. Also, I wanted to make mention to one other uh, announcement in your bulletin. If you open it up all the way out and you look on the, uh, let's see, your left-hand side in the corner, we put put down a little free event that's happening on Saturday, and I wanted to draw attention to it. We didn't do an announcement slide because we had a few of those, but uh, there's a free event taking place at uh, the, uh, remind me of the name, the Creation Museum down in Santee. Uh, it's a family event. Uh, if, if any of you have an interest in uh, uh, creationism, in uh, the, the dinosaurs, and in all those kinds of things, this museum is the place to go on Saturday. It's a free event. They're opening up a brand new exhibit. My wife and I are very, uh, very seriously considering going on Saturday. So if you want to join us, let us know. We might be down there. And there's going to be a really, really neat free family event down in Santee. So take a look at that event and uh, consider your participation. Well, with that, let's stand together and read from the word of the Lord in Luke chapter 9. Let's stand together. Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 49, all the way through 56. Luke writes this, Luke 9, 49. Now John, Jesus' disciple, John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to John, Do not forbid him, for he who is not against us is on our side. Now it came to pass when the time had come for Jesus to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and he sent messengers before his face and as they went they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they, the Samaritans, did not receive Jesus because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, just as Elijah did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. Lord, we ask that you would be with us now as we open and consider your word. We ask your Holy Spirit to guide us, to teach us, 
to show us, God, the lesson for today and to cause life change in us, Lord. We don't just want head knowledge. We want it to penetrate our heart and change our mind and change the way we look at the world and how we relate to you. So teach us today, Lord. We invite you here. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The title of this uh, sermon today is, What Manner of Spirit Are You? What Manner of Spirit Are You? My uh, son uh, is already doing what I did as a child. He's uh, really starting to get into that zone of uh, defending his sister when someone uh, harms her or says something mean to her. And I've seen Bennett do this now time and time again where Mallory will get hurt uh, by someone or they'll say something mean toward her and my son you, you may some of you who teach him in Sunday school you might see this for once well he'll tense up and he'll just want to scream at the person who's harming his sister and sometimes he will scream at the person who is harming his sister I mean I've heard him say things that I can't imagine my son saying about doing harm to someone all because he's in the mindset that he needs to defend his sister at all costs and as a father I look at that and go well on some level I I applaud my son that at all costs he is ready and willing to defend his sister already at a young age. But on the other hand, as I read portions of my scripture, especially in Luke 9, I think to myself, what manner of spirit is in my son in those moments? What manner of spirit is in my son or in any of us when we rise up and want justice? That's what's happening here in Luke 9. In a couple stories, actually, in a couple vignettes. We have one beginning in verse 49 through 50 and another in the following verses thereafter. Take a look at verse 49 again. Now John answered, John, one of the disciples of Jesus, John answered and said, Master, we saw someone. He was casting out demons in your name. And we forbade him because he does not follow with us. The word forbade there, kaluo in, in Greek, uh, depending on how it's translated, and you're going to see a number of translation issues in your Bibles today if, you, if, you're, if you're looking at your own scripture uh, in your hand other than the text that I've provided. But the word forbade there is, uh, is used differently in different Greek manuscripts. It's the same Greek verb, but it's translated, uh, the, the tense of the verb is different depending on the manuscript you're using. So some of your versions might say, we forbade him. Others of your Bibles might say, we tried to stop him. Not really that much of a difference between the two. A little bit of a nuance, of course. There there might be a little bit more of a physical action of the disciple, John, intervening in the situation versus a verbal warning. But nevertheless, the point is indelibly clear that John is upset that this man, whomever he was, was casting out demons in the name of Jesus. John didn't know this man. John hadn't uh, seen this man perform such things in the past. When John looked at this man and then he looked back at his disciples, his friends, and he looked at Jesus, he thought, hey, there's a disconnect here. We don't know him. We don't know who you are. We don't know where you've come from. You may be invoking Jesus, but you don't follow with us. 
And so John forbade him, he, he, or, or perhaps he even intervened and tried to stop this man from doing what he is doing. Well, why is John doing this? Why is he intervening in the way that he is? Why is he, why is he rising up in, in such a moment? Well, if you look, if you if can recall where we've been in chapter 9 of Luke, chapter 9 has been a fascinating chapter. Consider where we've come with respect to the 12 disciples. At the start of John 9 in chapter 1, Jesus sent them out and he gave them power. He sent out the 12 and he gave them power, power to heal, power to perform miracles. And off they went in, in chapter 9, verse 1 of Luke. Off they went and they came back. And if you read verse 10, it says they came back and they reported all the ma- magnificent things that had been done as a result of the power that they had been given. So, so high were they on the power of God and on the use of that power, the manifestations of God's power everywhere that Peter declared when Jesus asked him, he said, Jesus says, who do you think I am, Peter? He says, you are the Christ of God. You are the Messiah, the powerful one who is to come. Peter and the disciples, they were high on power and on demonstrations of what God was about to do. And Peter said, you are the Messiah, Lord. In chapter 9, verse 20. But Jesus quieted his disciples. He immediately said, shh, don't tell anyone. And why was that? Because in the the mind of the disciples, they were thinking that this Messiah, Jesus, that all he was going to do was restore the kingdom to Israel, restore the power to Israel, Put off the Romans, put off the Greeks, and make Israel, Jerusalem, the center of the world to usher in the powerful kingdom of God. That was the disciples' view of what Jesus was doing. And Jesus says, no, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be killed. In chapter 9, verse 21. Suffering, death, The disciples had no context for this kind of a Messiah. And it still was spinning in their heads as they got to the story that we covered last week, the transfiguration of Jesus. When Jesus went high up on a mountain with Peter, James, and John, and up on that mountain, he met with Moses and Elijah, and Peter woke up and he saw what had happened. He saw Moses, he saw Elijah, he saw Jesus, and he thought, again, the kingdom is here. The powerful manifestation of God is here. And Peter said, we're going to build three tents. We learned last week those tents... We're reminiscent of Zechariah 14, in which at the end of the age, they celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Tents, that reminds the people, the Jewish people of all they've come through in their history of walking through the wilderness, all that they've come through, living years and years in temporary shelters, not in their land, but now, now in Zechariah 14, at the end of the age, they will celebrate it, not because they're going to continue on in, in, in a temporary shelter, but that they're going to celebrate it in memoriam, knowing that the kingdom is here. The kingdom is here. But again... Jesus hears Peter, he hears the disciples, their notion that, hey, the powerful kingdom has come. And Jesus says, no, you missed it, Peter. While you were sleeping, I was talking about my exodus. Chapter 9, verse 31. My departure 
from this world with Moses and Elijah. I wasn't talking about the powerful establishment of my kingdom on earth. That's yet to come. But right now I'm talking about what I'm about to do on the cross. Still, the disciples were focused on power. And in the vignettes that followed, some vignettes that we've skipped over as we continue through the Gospel of Luke, you see the disciples interacting with the crowds. They're, they're clamoring for healing in, in chapter 9, verse 37. They're trying to heal a boy who has a demon. They can't do it. They're trying to develop a, a, you know, cliques and groups of people that will follow them and, and, and showcase their power. Jesus is frustrated with them, calling them an unbelieving and perverse generation. Jesus is focused on suffering. But the disciples in the vignette just before this story, they're talking about who's greater in the kingdom of God. They're sitting around having a conversation. Who's the greatest in the kingdom of God? Power, greatness. These were the things on the mind of the disciples. Suffering, humility, death. These were the things on the mind of Jesus in Luke 9. We have a total dichotomy. Total dichotomy. On your outline, John Martin writes, John, the disciple, must have thought that the disciple's own greatness was diminished if others who were not of the twelve disciples could also cast out demons. Jesus' reply suggested that the twelve were not to see themselves as God's exclusive representatives. Rather, they should have rejoiced that the power of God was being manifested on earth by others as well. I think Martin, John Martin, is on to something there. I think John, the disciple, clearly wanted to consolidate his power and the power of his friends. Notice in verse 49 that John does not say, Lord Jesus, we forbid him because he failed to cast out a demon. That's not what he says. It looks as if the man was actually casting out demons. He wasn't failing. He was actually successful in what he was doing. John doesn't say, we forbade him because it wasn't working. No. John doesn't say, we forbade him because he was maligning the name of Jesus. No. John doesn't say, we forbade him because he was drawing attention to himself and bringing accolades to himself. No. John says, we forbade him because, what does it say? He does not follow with us. It wasn't the man's Misuse, John Grassmick writes, it wasn't the man's misuse of Jesus' name that troubled them, but rather his unauthorized use of the name. There was jealousy. There was a power battle. Especially jealousy because a, a few days earlier, the disciples could not exercise a demon from a little boy earlier in Luke 9. And I wonder... Have we ever acted like John is acting here? Have you ever tried to uh, uh, put someone down because you wanted to remain in power? Have you ever been jealous of someone and so as a result of your jealousy, you've maligned them behind their back? 
You've spoken ill of them. Purposefully hampering their reputation, their efforts, in an effort to, to maintain your superiority over them. Have you ever put others down because of your quest for power or your jealousy of them? And I think for all of us, the answer is yes. We've all been in situations where we wanted to hold on to something. We wanted to hold on to something that, that, that we were good at, that, uh, that we had authority over, that, that we had power over, that we had a title that said, we do this, and therefore no one else can. Jesus, folks, Jesus is not very interested in titles, in uh, degrees, in uh, whatever kind of man-made qualification you may think you have on your resume. Jesus is very, very disinterested in such things. He is always looking at your heart. Always. He is always looking at your heart. The men and women, we look at the, the resume. And uh, just the other day I was with someone and they were, they were looking through resumes uh, tr- trying to figure out who they were going to hire. And, and on the one hand, we have to. We have to look at resumes. We have to figure out who has the qualifications to accomplish the job at our place of business. Understandable. Or, or wherever we work, at our education or wherever in healthcare. In some ways, this world is about the resume. But when it comes... To the heart, Jesus says, that's really, really what I'm after. John, the disciple, was eminently qualified. He had been given the power of God. He had been given individualized teaching from Jesus Christ. He was on the inner circle. He's within the the inner three, Peter, James, and John. Eminently qualified. His resume was great. And yet Jesus rebuked him. Look at verse 50. Jesus said to him, Do not forbid him, for he who is not against us is on our side. Jesus looked at John's heart and grieved. Resume, flawless. Heart, fail. How's your heart? How's your heart? Jesus was grieved at John's, uh, at what John had done to this man. But what's interesting in the Gospel of Luke is uh, how many times Luke takes us back in this chapter to uh, to the story of the Exodus. We we had mentioned it in uh, in Luke nine thirty one. If you read Luke nine thirty one, the words there, his departure or his decease. Jesus was talking with Moses and Elijah about his exodus, is the word in Greek there, his coming death and and suffering and and the road to Calvary. And it's interesting in Luke 9 how how many times we keep going back to this story of exodus and departure, going back to the story of of really of Moses and the Israelites wandering in the wilderness, a time of, of pain and of sorrow, because this very story in Luke 9, 49 and 50 harkens back to another story in Numbers chapter 11 
Go ahead and turn there. If, if you have a Bible, turn there. If you'd like, you can read it there on your outline. Look at Numbers chapter 11. Consider the parallels between the two. As a little bit of a, a setup to Numbers 11, uh, I want to tell you what was happening in that story before we read it. So don't read too far ahead yet. In Numbers 11, Moses and the Israelites are wandering through the wilderness and things are getting kind of grumpy. The people are tired of eating the manna that came from heaven. And they wanted meat. They're tired of this manna, of this uh, bread-like substance. They wanted meat. And they were starting to complain at the start of Numbers chapter 11. Moses, why did you bring us out here and we have no meat? Where's the filet mignon? Well, Moses was so tired of hearing complaints. Uh, A man after my own heart. Moses could not stand hearing complaints. Neither can I, as my, my wife will attest to that. If, if somebody wants to whine, I always say, here, find someone else to whine to. My wife doesn't whine, by the way. It's just that I, I whine to her when other people whine to me. So that, that's, what, that's how she gets it. But nonetheless, Moses was tired of the whining and complaining. And he goes to God and says, Lord, I'm tired of bearing this, bearing this burden alone. God says, fine. Appoint 70 men. Count them. 70. Find 70 elders. You'll know who they are and, 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 and recognize, find the recognized leaders in the community. Gather the 70 together and go meet me at the tabernacle. The place of worship. The temporary place of worship that the Israelites constructed as they walked through the wilderness. Go meet me at the tabernacle after you've gathered those 70. Well, Moses was doubtful, but nevertheless, he gathered the 70 and he told all 70 men, he says, meet me at this date and time over at the tabernacle. We pick up the story. Oh, excuse me, excuse me. Before we pick up the story, when they met with God at the tabernacle, Moses and, and these elders in verse 25, it says that the Holy Spirit descended upon them and that they prophesied. And that they received a a special confirmation and a manifestation of God's power. They were assured in their hearts that God was going to take care of them. There was a, a, a manifestation of the Spirit. And they all prophesied at the tabernacle, Moses and the elders. We pick up the story in verse 26. Look at 1126. But two men had remained in the camp. That is the camp of the Israelites. Two of the elders, by the way. So that means 68 of them went with Moses, but two of the elders remained in the camp for reasons not mentioned. Verse 26, but two men remained in the camp. The name of one was Eldad. The name of the other was Medad. And the spirit rested upon them as well, we might add. Now they were among those listed but who had not gone out to the tabernacle, yet they prophesied in the camp. So the Spirit had fallen upon them as well. Verse 27, And a young man ran and told Moses and said, Moses, Eldad and and Medad, they're prophesying in the camp. Verse 28, So Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, one of his choice men, answered and said, Moses, my Lord, forbid them. Then Moses said to Joshua, are you zealous for my sake? Oh, that all, all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them all. 
And Moses returned to the camp, both he and the elders of Israel. See any parallels? Wow. Joshua. Oh yeah, the same Joshua. The same Joshua who would later lead the Israelites into the promised land. The same Joshua for whom the book of Joshua is named is making his first appearance in the book of Numbers. His very first appearance. He was, he was uh, seen elsewhere in Exodus, but his first appearance in the book of Numbers. Here comes Joshua entering in on the scene. He hears what the young man says, that Eldad and Medad has been prophesying in the camp, and Joshua, he's upset. Because you see, Joshua was with Moses and the elders up at the tabernacle, and they were performing the authorized manifestation of the Spirit up at the tabernacle. You know, the, the legitimate one. The one that had the, the proper leadership there, the proper people designated at the appointed time, at the appointed place. All of it was authorized. Joshua was there at the authorized manifestation of the Spirit. And upon hearing the news that Eldad and Medad were doing something else, unauthorized back at camp well that's just not acceptable that didn't go through the proper chain of command and so Joshua rises up and says Moses forbid them forbid them from doing this don't let them do this don't let them speak in the spirit don't let them prophesy in the camp they disobeyed you Moses you are our leader. Command them to be quiet. Their words cannot be the words of God unless you authorize it, Moses, unless it comes down the proper chain of command, the narrow chain of command. What did, uh, what did John tell Jesus in Luke 9? They were cast, he was casting out demons in your name, and I, we forbade him. He doesn't follow with us. Don't you agree, Jesus? Forbid him, Jesus. Don't you agree? Forbid him. Don't let this man do this. Don't let this man cast out demons in your name. Tell him to stop. We don't know him. He doesn't follow with us. He is not an authorized representative. He is outside the chain of command. Moses, when he was faced with that uh, request of Joshua, had a very interesting response. Back in Numbers 11, he said, Joshua, are you zealous for my sake? Are you, Joshua, are you, <laughs> are you just interested in making sure I stand up on this podium? Is that all you're interested in? Joshua, are you simply interested in maintaining me in a proper light and you and all the elders with their delineated proper chain of command powers underneath me? Are you simply interested in elevating me and you and the elders and all those whom the Lord has blessed with leadership in this wilderness wandering? Are you just zealous for me? 
I hope not, says Moses, because Joshua, it is not about me. It is not about me. Oh, that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put His Spirit upon them all. Moses conveyed to Joshua that despite the fact that Moses was the qualified, appointed, authorized leader of Israel, that far preferable to Moses would be that every single one of those under his care would rise up and would have a vibrant and a robust and such an alive relationship with God that they would not even need a Moses to lead them through the wilderness. Moses, his wish was that the people would rise up and experience the power and the manifestation of the Spirit of God upon them in such a way that he could just descend down, down the podium and join them and walk alongside them as they all walked with God. In the economy of, of this, this world, we have leaders. We have uh, uh, men and women in, in various positions of authority, in government, in education, in health care, in the church, and in many places of society. In this, in this economy, in this world, we have, uh, we have this kind of a structure. But it is always the case when it comes to the church that the leadership, the spiritual leaders, are to have a disposition that begs and pleads with God to put them out of work because revival has happened so amazingly in their ranks. Don't be zealous for my sake, Moses says. Wherever God is going to work, that's where I want to go. How does Jesus respond to John? Jesus says, do not forbid him. He who is not against us is on our side. Your desire for exclusiveness, let it go. Your desire for the chain of command, let it go. Your desire to hold on to power and titles and credentials and degrees and author, authorization, let it go. On your outline, in the back of your outline, I want you to write down three words. Celebrate whatever God is doing wherever he is doing it through whomever he chooses. I'll say that again. Celebrate whatever God is doing wherever he is doing it through whomever he chooses. That is to be our disposition, folks. And when we, uh, when we hear of churches or organizations that are exclusive and when you hear of, of leaders, particularly in churches, that espouse things that say, you know, we're, we're the only ones doing it right. We're the only ones that uh, 
that you can walk in the doors of this church and this is the only place that you're going to get the authorized teaching and the authorized training. And, and our missionaries, these are the only missions endeavors that are proper and that are good. And if you're, if you're not serving in these walls, if, you're, if you've got something out there, that's not as important as what's happening in here. No. Churches that act like clubs or have an, an, an aura of exclusivity, completely the antithesis of what Moses said to Joshua and what Jesus said to John. I know of one church that, uh, you know, a requirement for their membership was that their members be serving within the church. And a person went up and wanted to become a member of the church and they walked up to one of the leaders and said, uh, I think I meet the qualifications. And they went down the qualifications and it got to the point where they were, where, where they were serving in ministry and they said, well, I'm serving uh, over there in, uh, in, in a, uh, a pro-life ministry to help young moms and, and teenage unwed mothers help them make wise decisions with their pregnancy. And the church leader looked upon this person and says, well, that's not an authorized ministry of our church, so you haven't met that qualification yet. She said, I'm, but I'm serving in a Christian ministry that helps women who are considering an abortion, and I'm trying to persuade them not to do that. And again, the church leader's response was, but yeah, but that's not an authorized ministry of our church. I think that's tragic. And uh, there's a lot of good things that happen in, in these four walls, but guess what? God's kingdom is a whole lot bigger than this place. Amen? And what God is doing outside these walls, and when I hear of you going outside of this church, outside of the authorized ministries, and doing something on your own, something creative, something that God's led you to do, we as a church, we celebrate that. We thank God for that. We praise God for what he's doing outside these four walls because the kingdom of God is bigger than Coast Bible Church. Amen? And we need to celebrate whatever God is doing, wherever He is doing it, through whomever He chooses. He's doing great things in so many places. We have, a, we have carved out a little piece in Haiti. We've carved out a little piece of God's kingdom at Camp Allendale. We've carved out little pieces where we can participate as a church. But you know what? The kingdom of God is bigger and grander than we could ever imagine. Don't be so quick to judge and to think in terms of the chain of command, would that God give all of us a manifestation of His Spirit to go and seek out where we can be the hands and feet of Jesus, wherever it is. And this church will get behind you, by the way, wherever you want to go. Show us where God is sending you. Let us see your heart. Tell us what you want to do as you've been impressed by the Spirit of God. Let us get behind you. Continuing on in verse 51. Now it came to pass when the time had come for Jesus to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. This is a benchmark in Luke 9.51. Uh, Every scholar would point to 9.51 and say this is the moment in which the rest of Luke kind of changes. And it's been leading up to it up until the point of Luke 9.51. This is the moment, not where Jesus makes a beeline to Jerusalem. He doesn't go straight from where he is straight into Jerusalem. He kind of takes a zigzag and then comes back to Galilee and then goes back down a couple times. 
But this is the moment in Luke where Jesus really begins to open up about his life, about his future, about the suffering and death that is to come. He's been hinting at it. And now is a point in Luke where the gates are wide open and the clear mission of Jesus' coming is made clear. Jesus is going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to be rejected. He's going to suffer. He's going to die. And as this benchmark verse in verse 51, this, this setting his face to Jerusalem, an idiom in the Semitic languages there, setting the face means to be resolute, to be no matter what happens, I'm going this way. As, he, as Luke sets this benchmark in Luke 9.51, we see the first example of what Jesus is about to face. A first example of rejection. Look at verse 52. And Jesus sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for Jesus. But they, the Samaritans, did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. A few words about the Samaritans. The Samaritans uh, derive from the region of Samaria, north of Jerusalem, about a third of the way to Galilee. And the Samaritans, uh, the, the, well, the capital really of that region, Samaria, was the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. When the, the kingdom split after the time of Solomon, there was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. That northern kingdom, their capital was Samaria, the southern Jerusalem. And in the north, the north, the northern kingdom of Israel had a, a, a long line of wicked kings, and they were the first of the kingdoms, the two kingdoms, to go into exile. The north, in 722 BC, the Assyrians came down and wiped them out. The south maintained until Babylon came in and wiped them out in 586 BC. But the northern kingdom was the first to go, the region of Samaria. And in 722 BC, the Assyrians came down and they wiped out the northern kingdom. And all that was left of the northern kingdom was a group of Jews who then intermarried with the Assyrians and other Gentiles in that region for survival. That's all they could do. And so they intermarried, the, the, the northern kingdom Jews did, they intermarried with their captors, and as a result, the pure bloodline of their Jewish lineage was cut in half. Now they were half Jew, half Assyrian, half Jew, half Gentile. Those offspring from the exile in 722 BC and all those that came thereafter were known as the Samaritans. Well, full-blooded Jews down to the south did not like half-blooded Jews in the north. They didn't like the Samaritans. And strife ensued for the next 700 years. So much so that when you read through uh, stories in the Gospels, you'll see a few vignettes in John 4. You can read it on your own at home. In John 4, Jesus is interacting with the Samaritan woman, and he points to a mountain, and he says, uh, what does he say in John 4? He says, uh, or no, she says to him, she says, Jesus, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, that is Mount Gerizim. 
Gerizim is the mountain in which the Samaritans worship upon. It's kind of like their Jerusalem. And she points to that mountain as Jesus is in that region. And she says in John 4, Our fathers worshipped on that mountain. But you Jews say that, that Jerusalem is the place for worship. And Jesus responds to her. He says, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither worship on that mountain nor in Jerusalem, but you will worship the Father and you will worship him in spirit and in truth. And Jesus tells that woman uh, that it's not the locale of where you're worshiping God, whether it's Mount Gerizim or Jerusalem. It's not the locale. It's what's happening in your heart. And also the parable of the Good Samaritan, which you know we read, we, we read it real fast. And oh yeah, there was a really nice guy and he helped the guy on the road and there were others that passed on by. But the Good Samaritan stopped and helped the man who had been wounded on the side of the road. We just kind of passed by that story. But to the Jew... Hearing from Jesus, Jesus a full-blooded Jew, by the way, hearing from Jesus that the Samaritan was the good person in the story, that would have spun their head. What do you mean the Samaritan was the good person? The half-bloods? Are you serious? The Samaritan is the good one? Interesting how Jesus often uh, points to the Samaritans in, uh, in a positive light, actually, in the Gospels. But here, here something else is happening, folks. Here in Luke 9, 51, excuse me, 52 and 53, something bad happens in Samaria. Jesus sends messengers before his face, and as they went, they entered the village of the Samaritans to prepare for Jesus, but they, the Samaritans, did not receive Jesus because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. In verse 54, it goes on to say, And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? I wrote on your outline there, uh, verse 54, kind of a summary of what they said. They said, Lord, let's burn them for their inhospitableness. I'll say that again. Lord, let's burn them for their inhospitableness. That's a word, by the way. doesn't look like it, does it? You can look it up. I promise it's a word. James and John want fire to come down from heaven because a Samaritan village would not open their door to Jesus and his disciples. And in the text, they, they, uh, they mention there, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? Some of your Bibles may not have that. Again, there's a manuscript issue there, not a big deal. But the disciples are clearly thinking of what's happened earlier in their, in their knowledge of the Scriptures. In 2 Kings chapter 1, Elijah, Elijah is faced with groups of men that keep coming to him at the behest of King Ahaziah. And these groups of 50 soldiers come to him and they want to wrongfully arrest Elijah. They want to imprison him at the behest of their king. And Elijah is having nothing of it. He does not, he does not wish to be wrongfully imprisoned. And so what, he, what does he do? He calls down fire from heaven and it consumes the first group of 50. And another group of 50 soldiers come and he calls fire down from heaven and it consumes the group of 50. You can read about that in 2 Kings 1. King Ahaziah and the soldiers were a direct threat to Elijah and to his well-being. 
They wanted to arrest him and to imprison him. And so Elijah called down God's protection for him. Well, James and John are are hearkening that story and saying, just as Elijah did, should we call down fire on the Samaritans just like Elijah did? And to that we say, well, there's not quite the same parallel now, is there? Elijah, his life was being threatened. They were coming to arrest him, to imprison him, possibly to kill him, to execute him wrongfully, all of it wrongfully. And so he called down the fire of God for protection. Here in Luke 9, the Samaritans have simply closed their door. They're not welcoming Jesus. Not quite the same thing. But James and John, loving, loving, loving their newfound power, loving their newfound authority, they don't like the the notion that someone's rejecting them. They're thinking, Elijah, 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 power. The great and awesome day of the Lord, the kingdom is here. The end is near. And look at us. We're positioned for the end, thinks James and John. We ha- we've been given power. We've been given power from on high. Let's use that power. Let's hasten the end. Let's get the party started. Let's call down fire to rain down upon our enemies. Verse 55 and 56. But Jesus turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. Jesus turns and rebukes them. Again, some of your Bibles might have various variations of these two verses. There's a lot of manuscript discrepancy. But don't lose sight of, uh, of the point. Don't get lost in the technicalities. Jesus turns and rebukes them. They say, Lord, let's call down the fire of judgment. Jesus says, no, your spirit is not right. It is not of God. Man, James and John love justice, don't they? They love power. They love authority. They love their title. They love to protect their own. They love justice. And Jesus says, you don't know what manner of spirit you are. You know, the Samaritans in the story were John and, John and James' enemy. They didn't like him. Earlier in the vignette, the man casting out demons, John considered him an enemy. They were hardly qualified as enemies, but nevertheless, in the mind of the disciples, they, they thought they were enemies. We have real enemies today, though, in our culture. I just want to close with uh, talking about these enemies we have groups in this world that, uh, that are our stated enemy. We have groups like uh, ISIS or ISIL, IS, Islamic State. Does anybody know their name? I don't know. But we, we know them as the Islamic State. And our country has pointed them out and said they are our enemy. We have groups like uh, Al-Qaeda that have come before them. We have groups like Boko Haram in Nigeria, whom I mentioned in a previous message and has, have been wreaking havoc among uh, Christians and innocent life in Nigeria. 
other various organizations of, of terror that, that our country looks upon it and identifies them as an enemy. And when it comes to groups like these, I don't know about you, but I really align myself neatly and nicely with the reactions that men like James and John have in the Gospel of Luke. I think to myself, Lord, let's call down fire. Let's call down fire upon them. They re- they've rejected you. Lord, they worship a false god. Their religion is evil and demonic. They kidnap, they rape, they destroy. They sell women and girls into slavery, sexual slavery. They kill all those who do not conform to their ideology. They bury people alive. They crucify them. They behead them. And every ounce, every ounce of justice within me wants to cry out, Lord, do you want me, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Lord, do you want us to send the full fire and wrath of our military or the militaries of the world to go and to destroy them. Is that what you want, Lord? And you know what? Maybe that is the Lord's plan for these groups. Romans 13 indicates that the governments, the governments of this world, the government leaders of this world, Paul says very clearly in Romans 13, they do not wield the sword in vain. They carry the sword of justice to wield it in this world when it is needed. It can be an instrument of righteousness if used well. But you know, as I read Luke 9, our story today, if my only reaction to the worst of my enemies is the reaction of James and John, then you can be sure that Jesus' rebuke is also for me. If our God, is our God a God of justice? You bet he is. But if justice is all that he were, then we would all die in our sins and be separated from him forever. He is a God of justice, but he is not merely that. He is also a God of great and lavish grace and mercy. He is kind, he is patient, and he does not wish that anyone should perish. And Jesus closes in Luke 9, For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. He's asking us, collectively, what manner of spirit are you? Are you merely like James and John, seekers of justice and nothing else? Or can you allow the Spirit of God to soften the heart? Will you let him in so that he can remind you that Jesus came to save and not just to destroy? And to those of you who think a lot like me and who are thinkers of justice, who, 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 think in term, who look at the world in terms of justice, I want to say don't worry. Your burning desire for justice will be fulfilled. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. But until that day, 
we need to ask ourselves, how can we show grace and mercy even to our enemies? Because I think I heard someone say earlier in this same book, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who spitefully use you. I wonder what that means when it comes to our present enemies today. We can cry for justice, and maybe God will give them that. If not in this life, he will certainly give it to them in the next. We can cry for justice, or we can check those feelings of justice and ask ourselves, is there any grace in there? Is there any mercy for these people? Is there any brokenness for groups who are doing horrific things in this, in this earth? I think that Jesus would like us to have a little bit more of a well-rounded perspective as we consider those who are against us and who are our enemies in this present day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we don't know, Father, uh, what is to come for, uh, for our enemies. But we've learned today, Lord, that, uh, that you are slow, slow, to exact justice and vengeance when it comes to the story of your son, Jesus Christ. He came, Lord, to show patience and long-suffering and to show us the road of suffering and death. And God, we confess that we often, like James and John, just want justice, just want power, just want manifestations of how it ought to be chain of command Lord the world's a whole lot messier than that you've asked us to be like Christ who came not to destroy men's lives but to save them so Lord even for our enemies out there today I ask God that you would give us a heart a heart for them prayers for them a crying out Lord to you to stop them in their tracks, but also to turn their hearts to the Lord Jesus Christ, that they might be saved, that they might know what they're doing is evil and wrong, and that they might see, that they might experience a manifestation of your spirit that would stop them in their tracks and cause them to turn into you in faith. Lord, help us to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.